This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today I'm excited to be interviewing Linda Goddard about her new book, Savage Tales, the Writings of Paul Gauguin, which was published by Yale University Press in late 2019. Dr. Goddard is senior lecturer and head of the School of Art History at the University of St. Andrews. She focuses on relations between art and literature in 19th and early 20th century France, and on artists' writings in a range of periods and contexts. In addition to Savage Tales, she is the author of Aesthetic Rivalries, Word and Image in France, 1880 to 1926. And she has also published numerous articles on a range of subjects, including essays on Cubism, and I highly recommend that one, Gauguin, and Picasso's poetry, to name a few. The book she wrote, which we'll be discussing today, is a fascinating study of Paul Gauguin's writings. It investigates their role in his artistic practice, and even more importantly, his negotiation of his own colonial identity. As a French artist who lived in Polynesia, Gauguin occupies a crucial position in histories of European primitivism, but this is really the first book to be devoted to his wide-ranging literary output, including his journalism, travel writing, art criticism, and his essays on aesthetics, religion, and politics. In the book, Dr. Goddard analyzes what are often richly illustrated manuscripts, and she counters the tendency to interpret these writings merely as a source of information about his life. Instead, she reveals how the seemingly haphazard structure of Gauguin's manuscripts were an important part of an artistic practice that ranged across media, one that enabled him to evoke the quote-unquote primitive culture that he so celebrated. It is a thought-provoking, and I'd like to point out right from the start, a beautifully illustrated book, one that stands to reopen discussion of one of history's most troubling artistic personalities. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Linda Goddard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here, Alison. I'm delighted to be here. 
Absolutely. Thanks for, for agreeing to do this in such a kind of challenging and strange times. Linda, I wonder if you might begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. You can take this kind of in any direction you want, where you were born, where you attended graduate school, who your mentor was, how you became interested maybe in 19th century and in artist writings. Just give us some background, if you would, by way of introduction. Sure. Well, I was born in Durham in the north of England. But from an early age, I grew up in Cambridge, Cambridge, UK. I went to Oxford University, where I studied French and Italian language and literature. And that was followed then by a a master's and a PhD at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. Um, I spent some time as well working as a reporter for the art newspaper in London. And I've had my position at. Oh, uh, I, oh! I didn't uncover this in your in your bio. This is kind of fascinating. Wow! As a journalist for the art newspaper in London. Yeah. Yes, that was just for a year, but it was a very exciting year in which I was. I felt very well plugged into the art world, but very poorly paid, and also keen to explore mm. th- explore things in more depth. So I. I went from there to doing a PhD where I brought together my interests in 19th century French literature and art history. And so from that point, I've been interested very much in Mm -hmm. the relations between art and literature, particularly in 19th century France. Uh, I've been based at the University of St. Andrews since 2009. So I'm now living there on the east coast of Scotland. And... Uh, mentors, I, you know, I've been lucky to have um, very many people who've been supportive and inspiring over the course of my academic career from early days up to now. I think in the context of, of this book and my work on Gauguin, I would particularly mention Elizabeth Childs, Professor of Art History at Washington University in St. Louis. And mm. she's been incredibly generous and, and supportive mm-hmm. And um, both she and Richard Hobbs at Bristol have done important work on Gauguin's writings that that was an inspiration for me. And Liz's book, Vanishing Paradise on Art and Exoticism in Colonial Tahiti, was transformative for Gauguin studies in, in situating Gauguin in a Tahitian as well as European context. Well, that makes complete sense. I, I've personally always wanted to meet Elizabeth Childs and, and maybe wish that she would write a book so, so that I could interview her for something like this. But um, I, you know, as far as mentors go, I think that that makes complete sense. And, and what an interesting background. I, you know, I can totally see how uh, even one year of a kind of journalism stint would interest you in, in writings and in artist writings, maybe mm-hmm. even if you already had the the interest, I imagine it would make it stronger. So I guess the, the next logical question, though you've already started to answer it, is how, how did you come to write Savage Tales specifically? Um, you allude in the book to uh, pre- your previous writings on Gauguin, uh, and obviously, you know, this, this is sort of your wheelhouse to, to think about artist writings, but why Gauguin I, maybe is the question, but also why this particular lens on, on him that you, that you put forward in Savage Tales? Well, more than 20 years ago now, I wrote my master's thesis on Gauguin's piece of travel writing about his first stay in Tahiti. So this is his book, Noah Noah. 
and which has always been understood as an autobiographical mm-hmm. text. And I was exploring how crafted and constructed it was in terms of his self-image, but also looking at it as a piece of art writing uh, in which he, he describes some of the paintings that he produced during his first stay in Tahiti. And they're very elliptical, though, and even you could say misleading accounts of his pictures. So I've started out with that exploration of that text, Noah Noah, in the context of doing a master's on 19th century French art. And from there, alongside other projects over the years, it's developed into a book-length study on Gauguin's writings, because although there's been important work done on individual texts by Gauguin, really there hadn't been any overarching analysis or full kind of critical overview of, of his writing, of which there is a lot. Yeah, that that is so true. And I think part of the magic of your book, aside from what you're describing in terms of how many different uh, sectors of his writing you're able to incorporate into these analyses, I mean, you're right, I think totally that uh, that Noah Noah is where the focus tends to be, and you know maybe some scholars will talk a little bit about about his uh, avant et après, the before and after, or about the divers shows, the 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 miscellaneous thoughts. Um, but the the way you synthesize them and the way you illustrate them, can we talk about that right off the bat? Because I know in the in the intro I gave, I, I mentioned just how beautifully illustrated this is, and even before I started reading it, I just couldn't stop kind of thumbing through these full, you know, two-page, all-color reproductions of what the manuscripts themselves look like. And it, it, I think, was such a pleasure, partly because it evoked for me being in the archive, you know, the way that mm-hmm. when you get permission from the, the Musée d'Orsay or the Harvard University Art Museums to, to sit with these objects and actually turn the pages, that, that there's such a magic in that. And the way you've recreated that, or maybe the designer uh, at Yale recreated it. I mean, how were you insistent on these images looking like this? How much did you know you wanted it or needed it to look like this to support your, your claims? Uh, I want to talk about the, the way the reproductions look. Yes, thank you. That was really important for the book. And it was also really important to the press from the start. And the designer of the book, as you say, has done an amazing job. And I absolutely love the cover, which recreates the impression of the collage-like appearance of Gauguin's manuscripts. One of the things I wanted, the Mm -hmm. points that I wanted to make about the writing is that I see it as part of a wider artistic practice in which Gauguin, best known, of course, as a painter, also was highly creative and experimental in a range of media and various projects and exhibitions have drawn attention to this recently, his work in printmaking, in ceramics, in sculpture. Writing is part of that too. So I try to position it not as you said at the start, not purely in biographical terms, not as a sort of background or a kind of interpretative key to his art, but actually as an artistic practice in its own right. And part of that is the very material visual appearance of at least some of of the manuscripts. I think the best way of describing them would be to say that they look a bit like scrapbooks, but very kind of artfully arranged scrapbooks. Mm -hmm. He's also got extremely neat handwriting, which makes it much easier as a researcher. 
um, but makes it clear too that his writing is is very deliberate, and the arrangements of sort of collage pieces of um, illustrations in different media that appear alongside the text are integral to that to that effect. It also makes the manuscripts what he's doing in the manuscripts quite similar in some ways to what he does in in his visual art more broadly, which is which is to say that he repeats motifs a lot. He recycles uh, figures and borrowed, or some would say appropriated, from a very wide range of cultural and artistic traditions and reworks them in different media and repeats them across artworks in different media. And the effect is something like a collage. It, it disrupts meaning. It makes mm-hmm. his artworks fragmentary and it, it contributes to that symbolist quality that they're known for. And he does this in the writing too, where he borrows and repeats passages of writing and pieces them together in a quite fragmentary kind of symbolist manner, which I think has often been misunderstood as as sort of simply lacking in structure or lacking in refinement and skill, but is in fact very deliberate. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the way that you talk about how the manuscripts look and you were, you were just evoking so much of what you say in the book and how they look on the page as, you know, we, the reader cross check or compare what you're saying to how they look in terms of the, this kind of collage effect or uh, scrapbook effect. But, but as you say, very artistically put together, um, it, they're really remarkable. And I, I'm almost angry now at all, all the commentators I've read on Noah Noah in particular that failed to, to, dis- to discuss this in, in the way that you do. I thought too, I'm skipping kind of way ahead and I do want to go chapter by chapter and unpack the arguments in each of them and the, the, the material that you actually cover in each. Um, but I found that this comparison that you conduct briefly um, in chapter four, where you talk about Gauguin's manuscripts in terms of this kind of put together quality and compare it to both the sketchbooks that Delacroix, Eugène Delacroix, the French painter from earlier in the 19th century, um, that he made while he was in Morocco in North Africa. And then also uh, Dugas, Edgar Dugas, who I never think of as as producing the, these kinds of notebooks, but these pages from his carnets uh, that you show are, uh, I mean, it's revelatory. So I, I did want to ask, you know, where, how did this occur to you? I mean, I'm very interested as an art historian myself in process um, and where ideas come from and things like that. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't say sort of like, which came first? Did you, you know, did you, were you familiar with the the, the manuscripts of Delacroix and Degas and then saw Gauguin's or, or when you were looking at his, were you then reminded of the others? How did it come about? Well, I should say that I'm I'm certainly not the first to make the connection between Delacroix's journals and Gauguin's writings. Um, and the work of Michelle Hanouche on Delacroix's oh, okay. journal, uh, she, she doesn't focus so much on, on this question of text and image or collage scrapbook type appearance, but very much on his style of, of writing. Um, I came, first of all, I was looking at mm-hmm. diverse shows which is in a manuscript together with a version of Noah Noah in the Louvre. And Divers Choses is still unpublished. It's, it's not available anywhere in, in full. 
and editions of Gauguin's writings, you just don't see what they look like, the print editions. So my starting point was to think about the manuscript of diverse shows in particular, its visual and verbal qualities and how it was put together. And then I started looking for analogies and seeing how this fitted into a literary and visual mode in 19th century France that was a bit different from what we expect of texts now. So what we might call Gauguin's, what has been called Gauguin's plagiarism in the way that he reiterates and borrows pieces of text and images was would have been thought of differently in the 19th century when it was a much more common practice and there was an interest in fragmentary modes of composition. And I looked then to the tradition of artists' writings, which I also think is a very important context into which to place Gauguin's writing. He's not alone in being an artist who writes. And that's key, I think, because we can tend otherwise to see what he's doing as idiosyncratic or uh, to dismiss it as as not his kind of primary activity, but it actually fits into a much wider tradition. Um, and so then I began looking at, at Delacroix and then particularly these sketchbooks of Degas were interesting also for the way that they suggested a sort of tension between public and private and that alongside other types of of travel memoir um, amateur kind of scrapbooks and collectors albums all of these seem to offer various parallels to what Gauguin was doing in his diverse shows manuscript well that makes total sense and you know, I, I should return to Michelle Hanusha's writing on Delacroix. It's been a long mm. time since I read that. And now that you're pointing it out, I, you know, I can totally see why scholars have, have made that comparison. But I thought the way that you stitched them together in that chapter in particular just was, was really revelatory for me. I do want to go back and, and maybe kind of take this piece by piece. The, the book overall, I should say, for listeners, has five chapters or it has four chapters and an introduction, um, as is the usual structure and a conclusion. Um, and I, I almost I very rarely talk to authors about the introduction to their book because you know, the introduction generally just kind of covers the the basics of what the book is going to be about. Um, but there were things in your introduction that that really struck me in ways that were important and that um, certainly came up in, in the book that followed proper. Um, but you talk about these kinds of uh, predicaments that accrue to the study of Gauguin, um, kind of right off the bat, you're, you're in the thick of it, so to speak. And I do, or I feel like we, we, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about, in terms of Gauguin, um, the, the really difficult position he puts us in as scholars um, when we try to analyze what seems to be a kind of ambiguity. He's both opposed to colonial ideology, but then he's also kind of exploiting Polynesian culture. Uh, and you talk about how, and this is how you put it, quote, it depends on one's position with regard to primitivism and imperialism more broadly, what we choose to emphasize. And oh, I just, I thought this was so well put. And I wondered if maybe you could just kind of unpack this particular predicament as you put it, of working on Gauguin a bit more for our listeners who may not be as familiar with his uh, life story or the way that his art is, is Im imbricated in, in all of these colonial politics at the time. 
Yes, it absolutely is. And it's increasingly fraught and challenging in a sense to to be working on Gauguin. And I completely understand and agree with the position that many would have that another Gauguin book or exhibition is not what we need right now. And instead, we want to be drawing attention to artists who have been neglected, particularly women artists and, and artists of colour. I suppose my my position is that this this means doesn't mean that we need to sort of stop talking about Gauguin altogether. And I would say that in a sense it's important to continue to do so if we want to understand and deconstruct Gauguin's mythologized position as that founding father of modern art and his primitivist fantasies. So we risk in a sense, and I guess this is what I meant about how what our take on primitivism is, that we risk perpetuating an image of the white male as all-powerful and of Polynesian culture, Polynesian women in particular, as passive victims if we shut down the conversation at this point. So I think if we continue studying Gauguin, it's a question of opening up new avenues of inquiry, not simply repeating the old stories. And what's interesting to me is how many women scholars and scholars of Pacific studies are now leading scholarship on Gauguin. The major exhibitions lately have been mostly curated by women. Um, To take a a recent volume of essays called Gauguin's Challenge, which was edited by Norma Browdy, of course, one of the most important feminist historians of 19th century art. Four-fifths of the essays in that volume are by women. And this completely changes the picture, has really the potential to change the way in which we, we think about Gauguin. So this kind of scholarship is enabling us to see that that women and, and Tahitian culture had an agency as well. They weren't simply Gauguin's victims, but active cultural agents who helped to shape his art and his writing. So, for instance, um, his grandmother, Flora Tristan, the feminist socialist campaigner, we see the influence of her in Gauguin's writings. Or scholars have drawn attention to how modern and contemporary women artists have been able to use Gauguin's example to their own productive ends. And we also see scholarship from Pacific culture, which shows the importance of contemporary and historic Pacific in terms of art, language, sexuality, to, to our understanding of Gauguin. So I would say that he is a complex artist and exploring that complexity is important in giving us a sort of fuller picture of of the complexities of Tahitian colonial culture. Yeah, very well put. He he certainly is a, a complex artist, and I'm I think happy in a way to to hear you uh, talk at least in this capacity about the I don't know the the challenge uh, to you know, to sort of paraphrase or quote Norma Browdy's book Gauguin does present a challenge to us and. I actually think one of the things that's kind of remarkable about reading the book cover to cover, and if any of my students or or yours are listening, I do, I really hope this is one to read cover to cover. You know, sometimes uh, scholars' books, I think you can cherry pick chapters out and assign them uh, as case studies and things in in large uh, survey style classes and things like that. But this one, we really need all of it. I mean, it's very tightly wound. But one of the things that struck me in reading it cover to cover is how 
deftly you navigate, <laughs> maybe is the way to put it, um, such that you never become embroiled in, in these problematic areas within Gauguin's life, within his biography. And, and that doesn't mean that you avoid them. I mean, you talk about some of the quotes in Noah Noah that I, you know, that I personally find so disturbing, and many others have as well, where he you know, admits to being intimidated by Tahitian women's quote-unquote frankness. Um, he ponders whether he, he should take them, as he says, in the Maori fashion, which he mean, by which he means brutally, as if he thinks they're longing um, for rape. And, you know, you bring these things up, but you never kind of sink into uh, addressing it. You, you keep it uh, in the realm of, of a very rigorous kind of scholarly assessment of text and image, which, which is kind of what you say from the very beginning you're going to, you're going to do. Um, I, I was struck and I will admit publicly, I guess it's a little bit shameful to admit, but I have not read Norma Browdy's new book and, and the essays within it yet, though it's one of my kind of summer plans. I have, I have it on my shelf or <laughs> whatever good that is. Um, but um, I did notice that in your footnotes, whenever you talk about uh, the, the critical assessments that you were just describing of Gauguin's imperialist or, or sexist behavior, um, the, the, uh, the essays you cite are those two from the 1990s that, that those of us who are art historians listening will all know, Abigail Solomon Godot's very famous article, and then the work that Griselda Pollock did, both from 1992. Um, not having read Gauguin's challenge, it, are those still really the only two that that address his his sexism in a kind of outright and and fully discursive way, or or is there more in Gauguin's challenge that we should all look at as well? I would say all of the essays in, in Gauguin's challenge are worth looking at. So those the essay by Solomon Godot and the book by Griselda Pollock were completely fundamental to shifting the way in which we think about Gauguin, that although a lot of important work has been done since then too, inevitably we keep returning to those essays because they were such landmark points in Gauguin's scholarship. All of the essays in Norma Browdy's Gauguin's Challenge are definitely worth looking at and they they push things in new directions. Irina Stotland's examination of androgyny in Gauguin's self-portraiture is fascinating as uh, Liz, Liz Childs' essay on how women artists have responded to, to Gauguin and Norma Browdy's own intervention, which provides a really up-to-date look at how, as feminists, we can respond to Gauguin uh, and, and looks at some of the ambiguities of his position there um, in terms of questions of, of gender, misogyny, and so on. It makes it more complex. Well, thank you for, for addressing that. I know that that took us a bit away from, from your book, but I, I did want to ask you about that because it is something, and maybe we can kind of skip now to, to what you cover in, in Chapter 3, a chapter that's titled mm. Noah, Noah, and the Artifice of Autobiography, which I really quite like, and I think summarizes Hello. where you go in this chapter uh, quite a bit. But you've already mentioned Noah, Noah. It really is the the one text that gets talked about the, the most. Um, you talk at the very beginning of this chapter about this astounding interest that uh, scholars have had 
in this particular text since it was first published in 1901. And you talk about how it's been published in 17 languages, which I, I mean, just floored me. And then you give this further statistic that a new edition or reprint has appeared in 75 of the years leading up to 2018. Why do you think it has this appeal? Can you can you describe what it is about this text that is doing this, um, and and give listeners some some context for it if they haven't ever read it or encountered it? It's quite striking the discrepancy between the popularity of Noah Noah and the almost complete obscurity of some of Gauguin's other equally important texts. I think the reason that Noah Noah has been so popular. There are several reasons. One is its publication history, because he was involved with a symbolist poet, Charles Maurice, in the writing of this text. And Maurice had his own investment in having the manuscript published. The version in which it was published in 1901 is rather different from the way in which Gauguin conceived it. But nonetheless, it had an early publication history. And this meant that key figures in early modernism Somerset Maugham, Roger Fry, Pablo Picasso were familiar with it. And so right from the beginning of the process of establishing Gauguin's reputation as an artist, Noah Noah played a role. Then I think there's the fact that this is a book that ostensibly tells us about Gauguin's life in Tahiti. And it's a very engaging story. The opening sentence is, for 63 days, I've been on my way and I burn to reach the longed for land. So he kind of grips the reader from the start. And then we learn how he met his Tahitian wife. We get a tale of marital infidelity on her part. We get his attraction to an androgynous male woodcutter. So it seems to tell the tale of a, of a very sort of interesting and exciting life. Although, as I argue, it's, it's very much a fabrication, I think. Yeah, and that, I'm so glad that you kind of landed there in terms of how it's very much, as you said, a fabrication. Because at one point in this chapter, you state, I would say very firmly, uh, that you believe, quote, it is a mistake to read Noah Noah biographically. And I don't know of many scholars who really land this strongly in, in terms of this position. A lot, unfortunately, I think vacillate because they don't quite know what to do with some of the stories that maybe are, are a little bit more unseemly from our 21st century perspective. Um, but I wondered um, both, you know, about that move stylistically and, and historically to, to make to make a claim that strong, you know, were you at all worried about it? Um, and maybe also, uh, could you address some are there indications that Gauguin himself hoped or wanted it to be read biographically because, because of this persona or identity that he put forward as this savage, which is where you get the, the title partly of the book? So two, two-pronged question, but if you could address those, I think our listeners would really enjoy it. In terms of how Gauguin wanted the book to be read, I do think that he probably wanted it to be understood as as a biography and as something that would promote his identity. He says to a journalist that it will help people to understand and to know him. But I think that he also would have been very aware that readers of, of his book, if there were any, would be comparing it to the very famous The Marriage of Loti by Pierre Loti, 
which similarly is a tale of uh, a romance between a French sailor and a young Tahitian girl. And it was extremely popular and well-known. And there are many parallels with Gauguin's book. One of the reasons for not seeing Gauguin's tale as straightforwardly autobiographical. It has a very clear literary model, uh, although it disrupts that model a lot. So Gauguin would have known that people would and did make comparisons there. So he knew that people would be aware of a wider literary context. So I think it's Yes, he wanted it to be seen as biographical, but it was also a bit more arch than that. He was aware that it was fitting into a to a literary context. In terms of saying that it's not autobiographical, it's not to say that none of it was based on things that happened in Gauguin's life. Clearly, it was in the sense that it describes uh, a period of time spent in Tahiti as, as he did, uh, but it really fits into a tradition of travel writing about Polynesia. And all that one needs to do really is be aware of that wider literary context to to see that a text is never a straightforward account of someone's life. And I think there is a tendency with artists to take their writings rather at, at face value rather than think about it as a literary form and construct. And there are many parallels and many tropes that we find in Noa Noa that we also find in a lot of writing about Polynesia from the period. And I think there's also the fact that uh, there, there is very little external corroboration for a lot of the things that he describes in the book as well. That's a great point to make. And, you know, maybe this gets us at something that, that comes up very strongly in Chapter 2, but also in Chapter 3, the one on Noa Noa that we're discussing and it has to do with how Gauguin really strategically constructed these a public identity, or maybe we should say public identities, um, or, or maybe that's not right, the, the right way to put it. I, I got the impression, the more I read the book, that he was different people, as we all are maybe. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be quite, quite so land so hard on him, but um, that he was very strategically different people or different versions of himself in different settings. So... If you read the letters to his wife, he's certainly one version of himself. Uh, with dealers back home, he is putting forward a certain identity with certain values to critics. He likewise is sort of sometimes very, very hard on them. And you t- discuss this in chapter two, the artist is anti-critic, where he has this stance where he's railing against the critics and saying, they don't have any business assessing his work, but then at other times he embraces them. He pastes the the reviews that they write of of his work into these manuscripts. So, can you talk a bit about these various identities, um, or you call them at one point performative projects, which I really like, um, and the role that they played in his overall art, or maybe even more so in his life, his real life. Well, as I. Th- as you said, we are all different versions of ourselves and writing is generally a strategic exercise. Even something seemingly as simple and private as, as a letter will have an audience, even if only of one. So he, particularly with critics, he does have to be very strategic. And that tense relationship with the writer, with the critic, is one of the things that really interested me, the way in which he lambasts critics and writers, and he wants to say that that visual art is is the most important form 
and is completely independent from what critics can say about it. And yet he himself is obliged to use writing, which he dismisses, uh, in order to promote himself and in order to curry favour with these critics. So that kind of bind into which he's placed, I think, inflects the way that he writes. And that's one of the things I was interested in. And then we do see him adopting these different identities in quite a playful way. And that's something that Alistair Wright has um, written about a lot in very interesting ways, as again, part of a wider 19th century cultural practice to adopt different alter egos and identities. We see artists and writers in France doing this a lot, often playing with different gender identities too. Something that Gauguin does as well, for instance, when he writes in his journal that he uh, wrote and edited and illustrated in Tahiti called Le Sourire, or The the Smile. He writes one piece from the perspective of a, a Tahitian woman as if he were a, a critic reviewing the play, and he signs it Paritania, Tahitian word meaning virgin. And here he expresses sentiments we wouldn't necessarily usually associate with Gauguin, which sound kind of feminist. He says, I must confess that I'm a woman and that I'm always prepared to applaud when I see another woman who is bolder than I, fighting for equivalent moral <laughs> freedoms to men. <laughs> um, and then... He, <laughs> um, One of his earliest uh, plays with a different identity was when he wrote an artistic tract and then passed it off as the words of one Mani Vebi Zumbulzadi, supposedly an ancient Oriental painter. So he's he's playing with identity Mm -hmm. in ways that uh, are, are generally playful, but I think also maybe have something to do with his own awareness that he must have had of how constructed and fluctuating identities are and as someone who is who is an artist but is also a writer and is very aware of the different social identities of those two practices as a French settler who doesn't want to identify with the colonial elite but also is not part of the indigenous community so like again like many of us he's he's awkwardly positioned socially And that, I think, has something to do with these identities that he constructs. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you're talking about these different identities and and some of the pseudonyms. Um, I, of course, was was very struck, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but the the T-Oi, I'm not (laughs) sure if I'm saying that right. And then, of course, his signature, the the Pego. um, And I'm not sure if on the podcast I can actually say what these mean. So maybe this is yet another (laughs) plug for the book. Go buy the book and you will discover what what these things mean. They they are... um, their their choice uh, sentiments. <laughs> That's not the right way to put it. I yeah. yikes! I feel like I'm I'm digging myself in a little <laughs> hole here. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, they are not words that I think I can get away with saying on the podcast. <laughs> but you, at one point in chapter four, um, talk about these in terms of his childishness, or maybe it's better to say his projected childishness, and and this being yet another part of his public identity, that he wants to embrace this kind of infantile uh, sensibility, including these pseudonyms, uh, pseudonyms that mean things that are just obscene, I mean, just ridiculous and and immature for someone of his age. Um, 
can you talk about these a little bit more? Maybe we shouldn't talk about them. I don't, it's, it's up to you whether you want to dig into them a little bit, but I found this business of the, the immaturity kind of interesting in the way you talk about it in the opening of that chapter. Yeah. Well, some of the writing is quite disturbing in a sense, uh, particularly the, the, the journal that he produces. It's very obscure and difficult to, to read and understand. Some of it is really unpleasant um, attacks, attacks on particularly local colonial officials um, who, whom he describes in you know, really nasty ways. And that's often accompanied by visual caricature. So this sort of debased language, both visual and verbal, is something that's actually really central, the, the caricatural, satirical element comes across to a certain extent in some of his paintings too. The grotesque is there. Uh, and that's something that, well, I would like to explore further, actually, in his writing. The whole episode of, of satirical journalism in Tahiti is, is less well, well known. Um, as for the childishness, this is part of the, the self-image as savage or primitive. So the notion that so-called primitive mm-hmm. cultures are more childlike. He's trying to associate himself with that stereotypical idea. And to to write as a child for him is to write as a primitive or indeed as an artist, since he equates the figure of the artist with the figure of the so-called primitive and instead positions the writer as the corrupt, civilised European. So it's a deliberate Childishness, which again is a, another motivation for writing in the way that he does in this apparently unstructured and naive way. I feel like this, the last chapter is where you really get into those, those most public writings. I mean, the, the ones that he's actually publishing and, and acting the journalist in terms of producing and um, what you, what you share is scathing and, and difficult to read. But it leads you really to, I think, produce this final chapter, the fourth chapter called Gauguin's Avatars, that just really felt so full and and very thick to me. I think it would be the one that I would likely assign in a class where we were covering Gauguin um, if I wanted to dig into these writings and have students kind of think about it. Um, so, you know, you, you return us in this final chapter to... Uh, kind of the, the where we started in terms of these discrepancies. You talk about his awkward position as an outsider to the colonial high society. He never is kind of admitted into that. Um, but then, of course, he's also an outsider to the indigenous community, despite his relationships with some of the young women that, that are from the indigenous community. So I wondered if you could unpack this. I've always, maybe as a side question, wondered if any of the children that he's fathering with these Native women are helping him become more a part of the community, or or is that sort of not how admission was gained? Do his writings talk at all about the children, these more esoteric ones that are not published? Um, These are are further problems, I guess, that accrue in terms of his biography, but if you'd be willing to address them, I think that'd be nice. He doesn't talk about his children and I don't know to what extent he, he would have had any relationship with them. I think in terms of his particular and 
awkward social kind of liminal social position in Tahiti, I would really point again to Elizabeth Childs's work in Vanishing Paradise, where she explores that position really carefully and makes it very clear. And what I wanted to do was see how that maps onto this equally kind of ambivalent identity that he has as someone positioned in between being an artist with all that that suggests to him in alignment with a sense of the primitive um, position between that and being a writer. So I, I wanted to kind of map those things on together. When we look at something like his newspaper, Le Sourire, it's and also the writing that he did for the newspaper Le Gip, or the Wasps, which was the propaganda organ of the opposition Catholic Party in Tahiti. It, the nuances of, of his particular position start to become clearer. Um, in there, he at one point writes a very racist speech, um, a protesting against Chinese immigrants. And here he's very much aligned with the attitude of the French settler community broadly, who saw the Chinese as business rivals. Um, But then at other stages, you know, he does provide, attempt to provide support in in various ways to uh, indigenous inhabitants. So he writes letters denouncing sort of unfair trials. This is when he's moved to the Marquesas in 1901. Um, He seeks better legal representation and fairer taxation uh, for local inhabitants. So his position is complex and and fluctuating. And I think when we look closely at his writings, we can move beyond the stereotypes of seeing him either purely as identified with a French colonial mindset um, or the opposite, that he somehow managed to transform himself into a a savage, as he liked to say. It's not a case of simply identifying with the French or with the Tahitians, but he's in this very mobile and, and ambiguously placed position in between. I'm glad you mentioned the self-styling as a savage. And we're we're continually using the word that he used, that Gauguin used for himself. I mean, this is the, the sort of one of the identities that he cultivated. Just as a quick sort of beginning to wind up question, I did wonder, even before I got the book, just when I first saw it listed on, on Yale's kind of uh, the, the publication dissemination thing that, that they do every year, I did wonder, did, did you, were you given pause at all about calling the book Savage Tales in terms of, did you think at all about putting the savage portion in scare quotes? I, I don't know. I, I, I was struck by it in terms of that's a strong move that you're making right up front in terms of the book's title, or, or maybe did your editors at Yale say anything about it or, or was it just you believed in it from the beginning and, and never, never considered it? I mean, I hope that the whole book puts the concept of the savage and the idea of Gauguin, that Gauguin had of himself as a savage into question marks, um, into quotation marks mm, in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it does. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the, the title is loosely based on the title of one of Gauguin's paintings, Comte Barbar, which is translated as barbarian or savage or primitive tales. And this is itself an illusion, which is typical of Gauguin, 
to the 19th century French poet Le Comte de Lille's poem Barbare. And also in using this title, I, I was making an allusion to the main anthology of Gauguin's writings called The Writings of a Savage, which dates from the 1970s. And there, the idea mm -hmm. of, of Gauguin as savage is, in a sense, largely unquestioned. But um, I, I hope that it's not in this book. In fact, one of the anonymous peer reviewers of the book got a bit annoyed by all the quotation marks that I was putting in and uh, pointed out that this... Oh, interesting. Well, they pointed out that in simply putting things in quotation marks, you're not actually confronting the question or saying what it is that you mean or that you understand by these terms. And I, I took that on board. And so early on, I've just stated that I'm using terms like primitive and civilized on the understanding that they're mythical concepts and projections and that they are inventions in the context of, of colonialism. They reflect the attitude of people like, like Gauguin, not any real properties of the societies or peoples who are deemed primitive. So I've just stated that and then taken out the quotation marks. So it was actually recommended to me to do that. Mm -hmm. Very smart. I'm, I'm, thank you for, yeah, thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. with us about the peer review. That's a, an interesting point. And I, I think I'm glad now after hearing your response to that, you took that on board and did that. I mean, in a way, uh, writing a book on Gauguin, you'd almost have to put everything, everything yeah. in quotation marks because of how we have recalibrated our sense of these terms. So very, very, very wise. Well, We've taken up a lot of your time, um, but I'd like to ask you one more question before I let you go. And that's, of course, sure. what are you working on now? We're eager for the for the next thing. So tell us what is, it might be. Well, it's at a very early stage, but I'm currently working on a project on life writings by women artists. So still on the theme of, of artist writings, but there's a a vast body of broadly autobiographical writing by women artists from the early modern period to the present day. And although these texts have been studied individually, they haven't received much attention collectively as a genre. So um, I'm interested in exploring what some of the recurrent themes in this body of literature is. So that's my new project. Oh, I can't, I cannot wait for that to come out. I know you're saying it's in early stages, but that's going to be such a vital contribution. And maybe I can interview you again if the, the podcast is still going, which I imagine it will be, because that that's going to be quite a contribution. So I'm glad to hear you're working on that. Well, Linda, that just sounds great. And I really enjoyed talking to you about your new book today. It's also a, a really major contribution to art history, I think. My name is Allison Lee, and this has been New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Linda Goddard about her new book, Savage Tales, The Writings of Paul Gauguin. I do hope that many of you are able to check it out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>